Today we'll have part two of our episode about pitching TV shows and movies and erectile dysfunction. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy to entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll have part two of our episode about pitching TV shows and movies and erectile dysfunction. Now, Ali, on our last episode, we talked mainly about pitching TV shows and movies, and I think the main takeaway for our listeners is that... It sucks. It sounds depressing. In, in <laughs> yeah, many I didn't mean to be a buzzkill, but it is. There is so much out of your control in that world, right? I think I've said that before in this podcast. It's sometimes you just remind somebody who you're pitching to, like it could be a group of three, four, five executives, and they're the decision makers, and somebody looks at you and goes, ugh. Reminds me of my ex-husband. Yeah, you said it. that. And yeah. that's, that's it. And that's what, what do you do about that? So the best thing, like, you know, as is the case, as they say in, in, in the financial world, you know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You have to spread yourself a little thin. And, you know, I was listening to Jason Sudeikis talk about how many streaming services passed up on Ted Lasso. Netflix yeah. was like, no, thank you. Amazon was no, thank you. And then Apple was like... A reluctant yes, in his words. It was just like, yeah, I guess we'll give it a shot. And then the craziest thing happens. And I really mean the craziest because it is lightning in a bottle what happened there. They finished the first season. They was in the pandemic and they were in London. They weren't really in touch with people as much who could in the streets be like, your show is amazing. Love your show, right? So they had a little bit of that. But they were very much in London. The network did not share any information on how much it's being watched, what the numbers are on the show. So they started a season two writing room, just in case, just in case. Let's just start, you know, a loose writing room. And then they get an offer. Hey, we want to start season two. And instead of six episodes, could you do eight episodes? Hey, uh, well, we, it was season two, but could you do 10 episodes? They're like, whoa. And two weeks later, we want to renew season three. So that's how they're like, okay, we're really on to something. And that is like, please do not look at that as a role model because genuinely, even Jason Sudeikis will say just lightning in a bottle like you can't imagine. Completely inconceivable. Two things about that. One is, in fact, if you watch season two, I think we may have talked about this when we talked about Ted Lasso before. There's two episodes that seem a bit out of place. They're very self-contained episodes. Mm. One's a Christmas episode. Another is, I won't ruin what happens in that second one. Well, they wanted to model The Office. They wanted to do two seasons and a Christmas episode. So they kind of shoehorned that Christmas episode in there. Into that. Yeah. yeah. And I, my understanding is they had to do some extra episodes because they kept, Apple TV kept wanting more and more episodes. Right. So the other thing is I was listening to David Spade and Dana Carvey, Fly on a Wall. We've talked about that yeah. uh, show before. So they, they now have listener emails and they read them some, some of them on, on the air, as they say, as we do sometimes. And one person was asking, you know, how, what are your recommendations for being successful in comedy? Like you want to pursue a comedy career and you know, their advice is what you've said before, Ali, is just keep, keep going at it, keep trying, get stage time. Like you have to just work. But what David Spade said, which was very interesting is that it's not a meritocracy in entertainment. Just because you have the best script, the best idea, because you're the funniest comedian, you will not automatically have success. 
which is very, very frustrating. And he's like, I go to the comedy store and I listen to three acts that are way funnier than me. This is David Spade saying, yeah, way funnier than me, but whatever. I'm the one who's successful and they're not. Right. Like, why? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's very self-deprecating, but very real. Also, he, he'll be like, I'm just some idiot from Arizona who hasn't been on stage in eight months, but they're like, David Spade's here. Bump everybody else and put him on. Right. Yeah. That is interesting. And so same thing with pitching, right? You could have the best idea, but there's so many factors working against you, unfortunately. Yeah. I meant to ask you this other thing on part one. What about people who've pitched to you? Can do you have any examples of that where like and obviously you're not a you know you don't have a production company, you're not all, you know, but someone's like, let's do this together. Well, what I was telling you in the last episode, what I was telling everybody was that you should know who you're pitching to. So right away when somebody's pitching to me, I'm like, oh, you actually have done zero research. You think that I'm a decision maker. So that's terrible. But I have had people, you know, I host a CBC a show, a radio show on CBC where we play stand-up comedians. We record all across the country and it's really a hell of a platform, close to 2 million listeners. And if you have an album, people's album, their sales get quite a bump from a play on our show. And so it's significant. You do get something, but sometimes people will be like, hey, I, I think I want to be on your show. Can I send you something? And they send something and you're like, do you even know what the CBC is? Do you even know what radio is? First of all, this is awful. Like just swearing the whole way through and like, you know, just the depths of genitalia being explored. And you're like, this is the stupidest. And so that's where you remember that people are just like taking shots in the dark left and right. They're like, let me try here. Let me try here. Who's the guy? Oh, his name is Alias Hal. Okay, I'll reach out to him. How do I reach out to him? Okay, how is the guy? And it's just like it's random stab, random stab. And you get nowhere. And in fact, not only do you get nowhere ahead, you actually get back. You go backwards in the sense that let's say in the three years since that person pitched me, whoever that is, they did find out what the CBC is. They did listen to the show. They did understand... I hear that name and I still have it in my mind like, oh yeah, that guy, no, no thanks. And I'm looking elsewhere. So now you are, even as you progress, you kind of like are stuck. And I've been in that position when somebody hasn't seen me in like five years and they go, well, I don't think he's ready yet to do a whatever, a gala or something. And I'm like, the last time they saw me was five years ago when I was actually not ready, but people don't, you know, sort of move with the time. And I'm guilty of that as well. But that's also human nature. You're like, okay, if this guy did no research on anything, three years later, is he really the right person for this show? As he do, you know? All of that goes to say that do research on who you're pitching to and everything about their world. Otherwise, you're really, you're wasting your time and maybe even setting yourself backwards. Well, Ali, very sobering thoughts. Food for thought as well. You think that's sobering? Wait till you hear what we're talking about next, Asif. Yes, we're going to be exploring <laughs> the depths of genitalia. Yeah, that's true. Okay, erectile dysfunction. We are doing our best not to be immature and juvenile about this because it is very serious. And I know if, if it was something that I was... See, I don't even know the right verb if I was afflicted with. Maybe afflicted doesn't sound like the right thing. But if I was suffering from it, I think suffering is accurate because I would feel like I was suffering. And I know men who have this condition, it must be like kind of a personal hell, you know, and it's your, this is what 
so many men regard as their their manhood, their symbol of their manhood, being male yeah. and, and, and virility, and, and and all of a sudden it's like I can't do any of those things. And and if you're in a relationship, never mind, you know, you can stop searching for relationships, which is painful enough. But if you're in a relationship, that also must be even more difficult because there must be. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a very common thing where the your partner feels somehow slighted or somehow less attractive because you're no longer able to perform like you once could. So before we talk about, you know, how common it is and what causes it, let's talk about what it is exactly. Mm-hmm, is it mm-hmm. quite simply not being able to get an erection or Correct. is it yeah. more complicated than that? Yeah, no, no, that is what it is. So it's the inability to attain or maintain an erection, you know, to achieve sexual performance or the consistent and recurrent inability to maintain an erection. So it used to be called impotence. They're kind of moving away from that oh, to be so more it's descriptive. The same. Okay, okay. Yeah, see, you know, when it was called impotence, I always thought it was uh, somebody's sperm that was not, you know, every, right, everything exactly. worked, but your sperm that's did right. not impregnate right. a, a woman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why I think they're trying to be more specific. The other possibility is that we're talking about someone who's no sex drive, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're talking about, right? So okay. we're talking about specifically, you know, let's say a hardware problem, right? In this situation. Sure. By the way, everybody knows that Ali was <laughs> quick to point out that he doesn't have this. He's like, you know, I'm not afflicted with this, but anyway. Do you think I was on the defensive too quickly? <laughs> I'm, just, that- <laughs> I'm just saying you want to be clear about something. I, so, well, so, you know. But, you know, I know because we do, I mean, I think we're pretty honest on this. It's true if we have something, you know, you've talked about in the past, you had a fatty liver and then you had to like adjust your diet to do that. I've talked about my sleep apnea. So, you know, we, we do make it personal, but just in this case, it's not. I was kind of just joking there. Do you want to talk about my penis a little bit more or shall we move on? I didn't realize we were going to get that deep into my genitalia, but tell me about how common it is, Asa. So this is the craziest part. It affects 50% of men older than 40 years. Oh my like, God. That is like- Is that conservative because many men don't come forward to course. talk about it too? So yeah, it's it's more than 50? It probably is because it's true. Most people don't. Oh boy. Or certainly, certainly don't seek medical care, right? Because yeah. though some of these surveys are done anonymously you know, outside of the medical field. But yeah, no, I know. So it, it could be an underestimate for sure. And so, yeah, that's the concern, right? It's it's certainly something we don't talk about, right? Like, again, like people might talk about sleep apnea, fatty liver, oh, you know, pre-diabetes even. People might talk about their blood pressure. But this type of thing that people don't really bring up in conversation. Yeah. In fact, uh, with all the friends I have, I've never heard it among any of them. And given given your statistics, you know, half my friends probably. So... The reason we're talking about this today, actually, even though uh, you're suggesting that I was defensively coming in saying I don't have this, I actually wanted to talk about this because I was watching a documentary. I believe it was Forks Over Knives or it might not have been. It was another, I think it was another documentary about plant-based, you know, lifestyles and specifically about athletes and their performance, changes in their performance when they're on a plant-based diet. And so there was an interview with the Surgeon General of Illinois, I believe it was. He was from some state and he was, he talked about erectile dysfunction and he said something that I just, I'll, I'll never forget, which is that erectile dysfunction is either often or always, and I, I think it was often, a canary in a coal mine, meaning that 
that's not the thing you're suffering from. There's actually something else going on. And erectile dysfunction is a signal to your body and your brain that either mm -hmm. there's some mm -hmm. kind of, and this is where I'd like to ask you what that some kind of what is, but right, I assume, right, exactly. you know, plaque in your arteries and right. other kind of things. So, so what are we talking about here? It's a erectile dysfunction can be a problem on its own, but it's also a canary in the coal mine or is it always yeah. something else? I think you need to look at what are the causes of it and that will help you narrow down whether it could be indicating something else going on with your body, right? Okay. So really erections are actually a complicated thing which involve multiple levels of physiology in your body. So you need this central nervous system, so your brain spinal cord, the peripheral nervous system, which is your nerves, your hormones, and then your vascular system, right? So blood vessels. So any abnormality at any of those levels can cause erectile dysfunction. And the one that we're start to get concerned about is the vascular one, right? As you're saying, because if it means that you have high blood pressure, diabetes, coronary artery disease, sometimes if you're developing atherosclerosis, which we talked about before on a previous episode, that's a buildup of plaques in your arteries. Again, not like the plaque on your teeth, but plaques in the arteries, kind of a fatty buildup. Then if that's occurring in other blood vessels, obviously the penis is supplied by blood vessels, so that could be an issue. But let's take a step back. Interestingly, I thought you might find this interesting, Ali, erectile disorder is described in the DSM-5, and the DSM-5 is what we use for psychiatric disease primarily. So I thought mm. you might find that interesting. That is interesting. And you'll see why in a second. So they break it up into different factors that can be involved. DSM, in by the way, I think you should explain to people the diagnostic what is and it? Statistical Sys manual. Yeah. yeah. That is sort of the Bible for doctors, right? For psychiatry and mental health disorders, yeah. But every doctor would have the DSM handy. If you're a GP, not would you usually. not have not it around to be? No? I mean, maybe some people do, but most people like just look up, nowadays, just look up the criteria for whatever you're seeing. Okay. Or you, something you see so commonly, like for example, psychiatrists know this so well, they have it memorized. Like they know the DSM-5 criteria for okay. various things. So they have a bunch of factors that you need to factor in for erectile disorder. So partner factors, so sexual problems with your partner, relationship factors, you were getting into this before. So communication problems, different levels of desire or sexual activity, individual factors, so depression, stress, history of sexual, emotional abuse, right? That obviously could affect mm -hmm. it. Cultural or religious factors might be uh, at play, and then medical factors, right? So you need to think about oh, all really? these things. And now you can see why it's part of the DSM-5, because the first four things I mentioned, partner factors, relationship, individual vulnerability, and cultural or religious are more psychiatric, psychologic kind of issues, and then the medical factors are a bit more what you were talking about with the canary in the coal mine. Okay, so if I come to you with erectile dysfunction, first thing you would do is you would say, I'm not your doctor. Right? Yeah. Go to somebody else. No, but yeah, if I, right. you know, if you it's were a pediatric somebody neurologist, who is yeah. supposed to treat erectile dysfunction, you would not do a blood test first and foremost for the vascular. We'll get stuff? to that. Okay. We'll get to that in a second. But let's rephrase that a different way. You don't want to just do that. Right? Right, right, right. You need right. to sit and talk to someone and find out what is going on with all these different, different areas. Right? So, really good point. So, okay, if I go to my GP. Yes. 
who does the GP recommend you to for erectile dysfunction? So they, they would see a lot of this on their own. They would do a lot of this on their own. Most okay. GPs are- and So I'll not a to, psychiatrist? Not necessarily, no. Okay. They would probably do a lot of this on their own just because they are quite experts. In fact, I'll link to an article, which is in a family medicine journal, which is a really good article on erectile dysfunction. They might eventually, if there was some a psychiatrist who specialized in sexual health, then they might end up referring them. But the other person that they would probably see is a urologist, right? A urologist is for all aspects of the urinary system. And then they also, you know, would deal with erectile dysfunction. So we'll talk a bit about when you'd refer to those people in a second. But if we go to the DSM-5, their criteria are interesting. They say, fulfill the criteria for erectile disorder. You need to have for 75 to 100% of, of sexual activity, you have difficulty obtaining an erection or maintaining an erection or a decrease in erectile rigidity. For Okay, so that's majority. 75% to 100%, so not all of the time, but enough of the time. <laughs> yes. Needs to have persisted for six months, this problem. Needs to cause significant distress to the individual. And it's interesting, they also divide it up into whether it's lifelong or acquired. So lifelong means since your first sexual experience has been the way it is, or acquired, you have normal sexual functioning, and then you have this issue. And then there's also generalized, which is happens in all situations, all partners, all types of stimulation, or situational, limited to specific types of stimulation, situational partners. Again, you can see how some of this, you have to focus more on the psychologic aspect and maybe a relationship aspect of it, right? So maybe a psychologist would be helpful with a lot of these issues. So if it's lifelong, okay, then it's associated with more psychological factors. If it's acquired, so you had normal sexual functioning and now you're having a problem, that's more related to biologic factors, like some of the canary in the coal mine. So that's why I want to kind of give you that background because you can see, so the first thing what would happen is you speak to your family doctor about this, and obviously, we're gonna mention this many times, if you're suffering from this, you should see them because as Ali has mentioned, it could be indicating something else. So you go see them, and then they'll talk about these things and then they might do more tests or less tests or send you to a specific specialist depending on what they find when they're talking about things. Where does uh, low testosterone figure into all of this, if it does at all? Testosterone is a bit complicated with regards to just people who have erectile dysfunction. So again, your doctor will go over this with you. And usually people who have erectile dysfunction with a problem with their testosterone. And we've talked about this with our andropause episode from a couple of years back. But people with the decreased testosterone will also have loss of libido, maybe depression, and that may prompt someone to monitor their morning testosterone levels to see if that's related. But overall, if you have a good libido and all of these other factors, then they may not worry as much about testosterone. So a bit controversial in terms of how much that's related. So, but getting back to your canary in a coal mine, so we talked about some of the conditions that can be associated with diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, but some other things as well. So sleep apnea has been associated, uncontrolled sleep apnea. Uh-oh. Don't worry, my sleep apnea is treated. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. I'm sure you've heard about COPD before there, Ali. And depression which we we know. And so vascular diseases account for nearly 50% of cases of ED in men older than 50 years. So in general, if you're older and experiencing this, it's highly likely to be a vascular cause. Younger patients who are experiencing 
erectile dysfunction, they often have more psychological disease. So if you're like 20 years old having it, it may be more of a psychological issue. So it's definitely a risk of cardiovascular mortality. So dying from cardiac disease, erectile dysfunction in one study was significantly associated with an increase in mortality from cardiovascular disease. Oh, damn. Another study reported that men presenting with erectile dysfunction had a higher chance of developing a cardiovascular event over a seven-year follow-up, as opposed to people without erectile dysfunction. And so we can do uh, something called a hazard ratio, which basically estimates your risk. And the hazard ratio in that study was 1.45. That's the same hazard ratio as is associated with someone who is a current smoker or has a family history of, myo- of heart attacks or myocardial infarction. So... In other words, it's just as much of a risk factor as being a smoker. And we all know that that's associated with heart disease. But smoking could also lead to erectile dysfunction because you have, right? <laughs> yeah. They're so all intricately. It's more, of a, it's more of an example. It's more of a comparison. So Fine. in other words, hazard ratio of 1.45 is associated with these people with erectile dysfunction developing a cardiovascular event. Similarly, if you looked at a separate group without erectile dysfunction who were smokers, they'd have an increased risk. It's just to say that it increases your risk as well. That, that's all I'm trying to get mm-hmm. at. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the other thing is diabetes, which we've talked about before. The probability of having undiagnosed diabetes is 1 in 50 if you look at people between ages 40 and 60, if you don't have erectile dysfunction. But if you have erectile dysfunction and you're between 40 and 60, your chance of having diabetes is 1 in 10. So mm. again, canary in a coal mine. Okay, you really like that canary in a coal mine metaphor, huh? Are there any other causes that we don't know about that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, there's trauma, any trauma to the pelvic blood vessels. Okay. So, for example, this is going to make you not want to exercise. Bicycle riding for long periods of time Mm. has been implicated as a factor. They think it's direct compression on the perineum. Perineum is this yeah. kind of genital Well, every area. time I ride a bike, which is only every few months, I think that it is a torture device made for me. I mean, I can't even, I don't understand how that bicycle seat is supposed to be, like that person should have been murdered on the spot because that was a, a very cruel person, whoever made the bicycle seat. I kind of get it. But it's interesting though, if you bicycle for less than three hours per week, they think that might be protective against erectile dysfunction. Maybe you're building up the blood flow there. So you don't want to overdo it. Right. Well, the good news is I am less than three hours per week. I'm 45 minutes every three months. So that's- Really? Oh, there we go. That's good. It's better than nothing. The other thing is, is medications, right? You asked about other things. So there are medications which definitely cause erectile dysfunction, which is tough, right? Because we mentioned depression. I mentioned depression a couple times, right? In terms of the psychological factors being risk factor for erectile dysfunction. But medicines that we use for depression can also cause erectile dysfunction. So the common ones are, I'm just going to say their trade names because people know them a bit better. So Celexa, Paxil, Zoloft. Right. And therein lies the cruel irony that right. wouldn't that make you pretty depressed to have erectile dysfunction? Right. And then you take this. And then and then, take yeah. This, it's yeah. a bit, of, you become a bit of a vicious circle. Yeah. And I, in fact, I knew that because when you watch late night television, <laughs> am I depressed? When you watch late night cable television and those pharmaceutical products come up, you always hear there's always some erectile dysfunction threat along with, you know, nausea and vomit. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, right. When they list all the yeah. side, yeah. side effects. Yeah. So in fact, you know, 
and we'll get into this in a second in terms of what your doctor should screen for when they see you. Virtually 100% of men with severe depression have erectile dysfunction. Oh my God. So, you know, it is definitely associated with that. Of course, that's loss of libido, loss of enjoyment of everything in life. So it's not that unusual if you have yeah, severe depression. But I think right? it's 100% that I... Yeah, yeah. I said virtually 100%. Yeah, virtually. Okay. Okay. Now, as far as diagnosis goes, do doctors have like a rubber reflex hammer that they just tap on your Hold penis? on. Well, <laughs> so the beginning of the diagnosis comes with your doctor sitting with you talking. So they obviously go through sexual history. Yeah, try to figure out your risk factors and your history, yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's ways to do this, right? And again, family doctors deal with this all the time, but how's your sex life? Is everything working all right? And so the way in this one article, they're like, if I'm a doctor, I ask someone that, the answer should be everything's fine, end of story. Any other response or a pause before that means Opens you need to up a whole this. new flow right. chart. Right. You need to start pursuing that a bit more. So that's kind of a good screen, you know, just asking to make sure that everything is okay. And again, not an unusual thing necessarily for your doctor to be talking about, especially in men over age 40 or 50. So those talk to you about this. They may do, like we said, hormonal testing. That's not that common, but they will do blood tests often to look for, as you said, Ali, like other causes, especially these vascular risk factors. So a hemoglobin A1C, which can screen for diabetes. They'll probably do some other blood work, including our lipid profile, looking at your cholesterol levels, lipids, et cetera. So that will probably be the beginning. And then they'll probably go into a bit more detail. Like, is there anything else that suggests a risk of diabetes? Maybe you'll get more tests because of that. Anything else that suggests high blood pressure? They'll look into that. They'll check your blood pressure. And anything for heart disease, maybe you'll get more testing for that as well. Many years ago, I've told you about this guy. There was a doctor. We knew his his secretary, his assistant, and his nickname was the doorknob doctor because his doorknob was turning so often because people were coming in and out and he would just recommend, right? And this is a very common phenomenon, less so in Canada, we'd like to believe. But the doorknob doctors of the world, are they doing all this or is this an ideal situation or is there some drug that is like this will get you erect again this will get you hard well hold on yeah let's talk about treatment in a second so yeah i, I can imagine a lot of people don't go through all this stuff and just prescribe it okay. I, but i i would say most family doctors would probably go through in more detail and look at these things, look for other causes, medications, and ask a few more details. I mean, there could be. So we'll talk about the medications in a second and the treatment. So, Ali, we have a Google Doc open. So I, I'll share these pictures in links, okay, as opposed to putting them on our Instagram or Twitter because I'll probably get banned for doing this. So there are some tests you can do for erectile dysfunction. These are very uncommonly done. But say you get referred to a specialist like a urologist, they may end up doing some of these. Okay, so we're going to scroll down. The first one is injection of prostaglandin E1. Are you at this picture there, Ali? Where are you sharing this? Where is this? Look on the Google Doc and then scroll down to the bottom. Oh, Pass there they there. are. Oh, yes. So the way erections work is you have this area called the corporocavernosa. And this is like a sponge-like region of the erectile tissue in the penis, which contains most of the blood in, during an erection, right? That fills with blood, and that's basically how an erection works. I'm certainly simplifying this. So if you want to test whether the vascular system, the blood vessels are intact, you could take a needle, 
you know, with a syringe and directly inject this prostaglandin, which should cause blood vessels to fill with blood. And then you should develop an erection within several minutes. So that's one way to know. And if you didn't see that, then you know there's a problem directly with the blood vessels in that area. So that would be a bit unusual. I've never heard of this being done, especially in a family doctor's office. Maybe urologists do this. Then if you scroll down, there's actually what you were just joking about, which it actually does exist, which is you can test the sensitivity of the skin of the penis to vibrational stimuli with biothesiometry. Okay, so this picture is basically a guy taking like, it's like a mini jackhammer, essentially. And you do like put vibrations on it. And you basically like we do this when we're checking for your sensation in your fingers or toes, right? We use a tuning fork, and we hit the tuning fork. And you guys may have had this done by your family doctor or a neurologist. And then we see when you feel the vibration go away. And if it's different than a normal person, then we say you have a problem with some of your sensation, with your vibration sense. So basically they're doing the exact same thing, but they're using a machine. Like I said, it looks like a mini jackhammer. And they basically test the amplitude of the vibration to see if you have decreased sensation. So that's another way to do it. Okay. Like I said, I've never heard of this before so until I started doing research for this episode. You could do an ultrasound to measure the blood flow, right? That makes sense. And then there's another one, Can if you scroll down, Ali, to this nocturnal penile tumescence testing, which we definitely learned about in medical school, but apparently it's very, very uncommonly done. So basically, you attach these bands to the penis, and then you there's something on your leg, which is kind of the machine that measures tumescence, which is like rigidity, right? So basically, if an erection occur, you have to wear this and then you go to sleep. And if an erection occurs at nighttime, it will measure that you had an erection. So the reason why they do this is, is so if, for example, when you're awake, you can't get an erection, but when you're sleeping, you just have a reflex reaction and you, and you get an erection, that suggests that maybe you have something long psychologically, right? Because you can still get erections. It's just that when you're awake in the in a sexual situation, you can't. Whereas if you have no erections at nighttime and during the day, then it might be something more with the blood flow, okay. something, as we say, organic. But this is rarely used, but again, we learned about it. It basically looks like you have like a holster on your leg with these bands attached to your penis. Yeah. It's quite unusual. I thought you were going to say arousing. Is it? Because this one is a huge insult if you're in a relationship, like I can imagine if you find out that you do have nocturnal erections, but not during the day or during moments when, when, you know, you're called upon to have erections, that's a tough one. It's, that means everything works, but it just doesn't work with that person. But that's right. what we talked about. Is it in all sexual situations or just with that partner? Right. Again, you have yeah. to, that's why you have to explore this. And again, the answer may not be just prescribing a pill, but since you talked about it, let's talk about the treatment. A couple things to remember. Very important to include the patient's partner in the discussion for the reasons that you, okay. you, you said. That's good. So you have to teach men that sex overall entails more than just achieving an erection, right? So it's kind of like deconstructing this idea. Obviously, you need to screen for cardiac disease. Basically, they say that you need to tell people if you have erectile dysfunction, even if you have no cardiac symptoms, you should be considered to have cardiac disease unless you can prove otherwise. Unless you prove they don't, assume they do. 
That's how important it is. Again, the canary in a coal mine, as Ali said. And then well, you want to the talk Surgeon about- the Surgeon General of Illinois said, but yes, we are yes, enjoying exactly. that. Close same. enough, yeah. So, and then you want to counsel them about lifestyle, exercise, weight loss, diet, et cetera, right? Because if you can improve cardiovascular health, you will probably improve their sexual function. Then when you, so this is kind of, that's the overall approach. Then what else can you do? Remove any medications, if possible, that could be contributing, right? If you really need the medicine for depression, maybe that won't work. Maybe you can switch to a different one. Interesting. One thing we didn't talk about, but it's kind of related to the testosterone, right? We talked a bit before about steroid use and HGH in a previous episode. And there's, you know, you can get hypogonadism from abuse of anabolic steroids because you're basically taking out the need for your body to produce testosterone. So that's a bit more complicated because that's testosterone deficiency. But what I want to mention is even if someone stops doing anabolic steroids, you can have this problem with low testosterone and no erections for months or years after you stop the steroids. So that's just one thing to remember. So you have to kind of not just find out what was going on now, but maybe before, maybe someone was abusing steroids before. Obviously, sexual counseling might be necessary. And then there's a bunch of treatments that range from not very invasive, like medicines, to things that are more invasive. So you asked about medicines. So any particular ones that you're thinking about? Well, wait, like Viagra? Is that what we're yeah, talking exactly. about? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah, there's not, no trick questions here. No, so yeah, it, you caught me on the spot there. That's a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor. And so we call those PDE5 inhibitors. And so those are the most commonly used treatments for erectile dysfunction. So there's many different kinds. Well, that's what I was thinking about when I asked the question earlier, like, that's a very easy thing for a doctor to do. It requires a lot, you know, the partner's not coming in, you're not getting an entire like life history, medical history, because with a doctor who wants to make money, those are all losing, right? This is now you're spending a lot of time with somebody getting all this information, whereas you can just be like, oh yeah, your penis doesn't, doesn't work. Here's something that will make it work. So I imagine... Yeah, you can imagine that is not a good way to practice medicine because not only are you just trying to put a Band-Aid on a problem, don't get me wrong, you may need to use this, but you need to also screen for everything else from a psychological viewpoint as well as from a you know cardiovascular viewpoint. So totally fair point. But you can prescribe these. Again, once you've done all this stuff and you've done all the testing and you've looked into this, so then you might want to prescribe them. So this is basically... They basically work because you still need sexual stimulation to produce an erection. And this PDE5 inhibitor helps to maintain the erection. What it does is we have the substance in our body, nitric oxide, which is different than nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is what you get at the dentist, laughing gas. Sure. This is nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is what we know causes blood vessels to dilate and get bigger in the body, including in the uh, penis. That's why it, it works. So... It works about one hour after you dose it and you just use it on, as, on an as-needed basis. Now, the effects may be delayed or decreased if you've recently eaten a fatty meal, Ali. So you need to be mindful of that. Okay. It may not work as well, okay? So again, maybe do that vegan diet Ali was talking about before. Side effects from those, pretty minimal, but you can get a headache because you're dilating the blood vessels in your Everywhere. brain. Everywhere, yeah, sure. Flushing, you know, your face turns red dialing the blood vessels in your face and dyspepsia i'm not sure sorry 
And dyspepsia, I'm not sure why that would happen, but that's kind of stomach irritation, heartburn, etc. Who's ready for sex, huh? I got a headache, my face is red, my stomach hurts, boom, let's do it. That's <laughs> always the problem, the side effects, yeah. Now, most of the, like, this is taken by mouth, but sometimes you can also do an injection directly into the corpora cavernosa, which usually works, but that's a bit of a big deal to take a syringe and inject yourself, right? You'd that, have to do this that on was your that own. Prostaglandin. You that was the test. That was a test. This is injecting a medication called halprostadil, and then you would inject that directly into the corpora cavernosa. And that's so, an immediate. Uh, yeah. Effect. So th that might you might say for people who the oral medication didn't work. There's also a medicated urethral system for erections. Abbreviation is Muse. M U S E, where you again put that same drug as a urethral suppository. Ooh. So you put that in there Don't like and that. yeah. So anyway, that would be a bit uncomfortable perhaps. And then, okay, this is stuff that I honestly, I didn't really know. And I thought that these were just like jokes that you'd see in the back of magazines or whatever, but you can use devices. So to facilitate an erection. So one is a constriction device, which you place at the base of the penis to maintain an erection because it prevents blood flow from coming out. So mm -hmm. then you maintain the erection. A tourniquet. Yes, a penile tourniquet, which you need to be a bit careful about. So sometimes you will combine those with a PDE5 inhibitor. But there's also vacuum devices where you vacuum, like, I mean, it's what you said, you, you pump out air, cause a partial vacuum. It will kind of make blood flow into the penis, and then you can put a constricting band at the end of the penis. So again, I thought these were, I didn't really know these were used in medical practice till I did this research, but. Interesting stuff. I mean, it's good that there are lots of options, I guess, right? But there are some very intense options. So the most is surgical revascularization. So surgery for this, right? So if you say it have trauma to the pelvis and the arteries there because of like you were in a car accident or something, then you can do surgery to kind of, you know, fix the blood vessels, but long-term results have been a bit marginal. But then you can have these penile prostheses. And I thought it was a joke because I just, I watched David Spade's special from last year and he was telling the story about like how allegedly Sylvester Stallone has erectile dysfunction and had to have like a device inserted that he has to pump up, like, you know, like with a squeeze pump, like the blood pressure thing. Okay. And he has a whole routine about, you know, Sylvester Stallone doing that. And Sylvester I'm like, oh, that's pretty funny. And then knock him out dead one of these days. Well, that, that's right. So there's an inflatable type, okay, where, again, it's basically like you inflate it as needed, okay? So you have to have this inserted, right, as, with a surgery, and then you have this inflatable pump. Or there's a semi-rigid prosthesis where you have these two matching cylinders implanted into the corpora cavernosa, and this provides enough rigidity for penetration oh, essentially wow. so the major drawback of that is you you've got two cylinders in your penis all the time <laughs> yeah so you're semi-erect all the time and you need to have surgery for that but interestingly the patient acceptance of these types of devices these prostheses that are you need surgery for is very high with a hundred percent almost of patients expressing satisfaction 
Now, part of that may be due to the failure of other therapies. So you've tried the oral medicines, you've tried the injections, you've tried everything else, and nothing really works. So you have a very highly motivated patient population who would be interested in this. So Okay. So yeah, I definitely learned a lot in this, a lot of stuff I didn't know. A lot of this, you know, a lot of these pictures, you know, from my Google search, like I said, I can't post them on Instagram because they'll be banned, but uh, very interesting. So the bottom line is, we've said it a million times, if you have erectile dysfunction, you definitely need to see your doctor about this. Again, the solution it's isn't not always a pill. on its own. That's right. That's yeah. right. And again, maybe you need to look for more a psychological point of view. Maybe you need medication. Maybe you need screening for heart disease, diabetes, etc. But you need to take it seriously and you need to go see your physician. Fifty percent of people. That's a. There's some jarring facts that you threw out there today, bud. Yeah, man. Yeah, it, it is crazy. And again, it's the type of thing that people aren't going to bring up. So, good thing we're bringing up, right? I think so. I yeah. think we've done something good here. I feel good about that. And and good. you can keep it as you know private as you want. Nobody is saying you need to sort of come out and talk about it with friends or loved ones. But definitely talk to a professional about it. So let us know what you guys thought about this series of episodes on pitching and erectile dysfunction. DrVcomedian at gmail.com, DrVcomedian on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are everywhere. Just a reminder to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to our podcasts. And Ali, just a reminder to you and everybody else, we're going to be taking a break for August of this year. So we won't have any episodes then, but we'll be back the first week of September. Ali, do you have anything to plug for July and August? Well, I will be in the Okanagan for part of the Okanagan Comedy Festival. The Okanagan is a beautiful area, a valley in British Columbia, for those who don't know. That's great. And the festival there is fantastic. That'll be in, in late August. And besides that, just trying to get this old body back in some good shape, you know? Stay home, embrace a routine. Moose Jaw's done. What else is a guy going to do? Just got back from Moose Yeah, Jaw. he was in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, right? Saskatchewan, yeah, where right? I ate scallops that were delicious. Landlocked wow. province. I was going to say, whew, yeah. that's a risk. <laughs> They're like, these are lake scallops. What? Anyway, <laughs> but remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.